Salam and welcome to another TMB podcast brought to you by the Muslim Vibe. As always, I'm your host Salim Qasim. And this week we're doing something a little bit special. Um, in celebration of um, the birth of the Prophet, um, we wanted to sit down with the Sheikh and talk about the Prophet, peace be upon him, um, and how we can, I guess, practically implement and learn from his example in the 21st century. Um, so we invited Sheikh Ali Hussein Datu, who has been on the podcast a couple of times now, um, to come in and just share some thoughts and, and kind of wisdom with us. Uh, I'm going to keep the introduction quite brief because the last time he was on, apparently, according to him, I, I rambled on for too long. Um, and so, yeah, I'm not going to say too much more in the introduction. One small thing, though, beforehand, um, the Sheikh and I are, are relatively good friends. And so at times it might sound that I'm being disrespectful towards him. But in fact, it's just a bit of playful banter. Um, please see it as such kindly. Um, Hasib told me to mention this because apparently it sounded like I was being very rude to him throughout. Um, but no, it, it, I, I mean, it's always a pleasure having the Sheikh on. Uh, and yeah, that's that's it really. Here's my conversation with Sheikh Ali Hussein Datu. Salam, Sheikh. Alaikum salam, Salim. How are you? I'm good. Um, thank you very much for joining us once again. My pleasure. Uh, you'll be interested to know before we start that you are actually our most recurring guest on this podcast with a grand total of three appearances. Uh, how does that make you feel? I think we're spending too much time together. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I, uh, I, I've enjoyed it. I don't think you have, but I've, I've genuinely enjoyed our time together. Just to kind of recap the, the podcast that we've done in the past in case anyone wants to check them out. We spoke about um, Surah Yusuf and the story of Prophet Yusuf. Um, very good podcast. We then, just before Ramadan, um, did a podcast in terms of preparation for the holy month of Ramadan. Also a very good podcast. And now today, we are talking about the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, um, in light of the fact that it's his um, birth anniversary coming up around the time of us publishing this podcast. And we kind of wanted to, we had a team meeting before this, and we were talking about what kind of content to put out um, for the birth of the Prophet and how we should approach it and whatever else. And one of the things we wanted to do was a podcast uh, talking about the Prophet and I guess contextualizing him almost for a 21st century audience. So looking at how today we can relate to the Prophet and look at the Prophet and I guess see him as a role model, not as like a, a storybook action hero or like, you know, someone, a mythical figure um, and someone that we just hear a lot about, you know, in Madrasa and, and going to the mosque growing up, all these nice stories about the Prophet, but how we can tangibly kind of draw from his, uh, his life and, and the lessons that he's left behind for us. So I'm going to leave that quite a difficult task up to you um, over the course of this conversation. Good luck. You know, Salim, whenever I think of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, when I think of the name Muhammad, it, it, it's pretty much a synonym for a man who has the best traits. It, it, to me, it means makarim al-akhlaq, the best noble traits. That's what Muhammad means and that's what it stands for. Mm. If you look at how he was a man who ran a state, he was the head of a state, he was a family man, he was a husband, he was a father, he was a war tactician also when they had to go to war. He was a man who would sit in the place of a judge many a times. He knew how to delegate. He was a businessman. He was a salesman. I mean, he brought together all of these qualities in one holistic human being. Mm. And at the same time, he was not angelic. One would think that somebody who brings together all these perfect qualities would have to be divine in the sense that he was above being that of a human being. But if he was that, and if he wasn't human, then he wouldn't be a role model for us. And it's clear in the Quran where Allah says that he is the best example for you. He has to be human in order for him to be an example for us, in order for us to follow in his footsteps. Yeah. So for a human to have achieved what the Holy Prophet achieved, you know, it leaves us speechless on one hand, but on the other hand, gives us a, a sense of yearning to become like him in mm. our capacity, not in his capacity, yeah. but in my capacity. Why can't I be the perfect father in accordance with my capacity? Why can't I be a truthful businessman like he was at the same time? Why can I be fair and just? Why can I not be humble at the same time as have uh, a gift from God? Mm. If somebody has wealth, if somebody has knowledge, whatever he had, he went through a time of, uh, of wealth. Uh, 
yeah. when he married Sayyidah Khadija. He had great wealth from her, but it never got to his head as such. It never made him feel he was greater than other people. And that's what attracted other people to him. The fact that he was a human like them. Had they seen him as an individual who was on a pedestal, an individual they could not relate to, an individual who had they had to go through different um, intermediaries in order to speak to, yeah. then they would have stayed aloof from him and he would have been aloof from them. There would have been a great distance between him and the people around him. It's interesting. A lot of what you're talking about right now is akhlaq. Correct. And, and you mentioned makarim al-akhlaq. Um, and the Prophet came and some hadith state that it was his mission was just to perfect our uh, you know, moral goodness or however you might translate that. I think it's very interesting then that a lot of people and often you know when when you talk to people about doing business with muslims in the community you'll hear it very often muslims are the worst people to do business with right because they're always very difficult whatever and they don't for some reason and i don't know what reason but they don't seem to kind of uphold the values and the akhlaq and and the, the the respect that the prophet would give people and we claim to be followers of the prophet but we don't kind of give that back why do you think it is that um, whilst on the one hand we claim to be followers of the Prophet, but at the same time you have things like people saying Muslims aren't, you know, never do business with Muslims and people have that as their kind of rule. What do you think has gone wrong there? I think we're very critical of ourselves as I think every denomination or faith or sect would be. Yeah. Because we see each other a lot, we're more critical of each other. So it's not that Muslims are the worst individuals to do business with, <laughs> but we deal with each other a lot and so we see not only the positives within one another, but we, but see we the also see the negatives well. much more yeah. vividly than we would see in other people. Uh, above that, obviously, we have such a perfect role model. So it hurts us when we deal yeah. with somebody. And I they, think maybe that, that we're setting the bar higher for one another. Or we should at least. We should be, correct. But it's not to say that, obviously, we can whitewash <laughs> one group of people. Yeah, yeah. I, I put you in a bit of a tough spot here. You, you didn't <laughs> want to say anything. That's fine. Um... So looking but I think what you said there was also correct in the sense that we cannot be hypocritical. Yeah. We cannot claim to love this man, mm. his family, love the religion, claim to be proponents of the most moral faith in our belief at least. Yeah. And then be individuals who will cheat, who will evade, you know, who will lie in our daily actions and in our business. It, it goes against what we're preaching at the very least. The same things that we teach our children from the time that they were young, that this is a man who was known as being truthful and trustworthy. And then for us to do the complete opposite when it comes to dealing mm -hmm. and for us to take our desires greater as greater than the actual principles that the Prophet laid for us, the moral principles, obviously shows a level of hypocrisy. There's, there's stories that I, I love growing up of the Prophet where when people would travel, they would leave their belongings with him and their money with him because he was that trustworthy and, and, and that truthful that they knew every penny would be accounted for and everything. And this was pre his declaring his prophethood. Um, and I think that's, that's also an interesting time to think about. Like for us, how can we, I guess, relate or learn from the experience of the prophet uh, pre his declaration of prophethood? Because obviously, you know, we're constantly told and reminded that the, the prophet um, is the best of examples for us so within that then throughout his whole life we should be looking for lessons and things that we can learn from him um, throughout the whole course so if we're looking pre-prophethood uh, what are your thoughts? The prophet's actions after the proclamation of prophethood was only because of the groundwork that he did until the age of 40 years of, until he became 40 so he was a man who like I said, traded, he was a salesman, he went with different caravans, and because of his etiquette in dealing with other people, it was clear that he stood out. Hmm. It was a man who wouldn't cheat, it was a man who would speak the truth, to the extent that, yes, even after the proclamation of prophethood, those people who rejected his message, as you said, they still found him to be one of the most trustworthy, if not the most trustworthy person they knew, hmm. such that when they would go on their travels, it is said that they would leave their belongings with him, knowing very well that when they come back, it will be given back to them in the same state. You said what I intact. just said, but it made you sound a lot better. <laughs> um, also, you find certain actions of the Prophet, are, for example, when they would go and set camp in the middle of the desert, 
he would, would tend to delegate and this is after obviously uh, preaching Islam now after the age of 40 he would delegate you know that you go and do this you go and do that and he would always give himself the most difficult of tasks normally he would set himself the task of finding firewood so in the middle of the desert to go and find firewood is going to be extremely difficult but he would yeah. set the most difficult task for himself mm. he would lead by example and this cannot have come only because of having the Quran revealed to your heart your heart has to have been prepared and readied for the Quran to come into it. Allah says in the Quran, doesn't he, that we revealed it to your heart. So this heart had to be purified. Yeah. It had to have that capacity to take the Quran, not only in terms of it being cleansed for himself and his own worship with God, but part of worship is also how we interact with the people around us. That is the religion as well. Religion is not just how we deal with God when we sit on a prayer man. Yeah. Religion is as much how we deal with one another, Muslim or non-Muslim. As it is when we come to deal with God. There are traditions about individuals who thank Allah and then he turns around and tells them, but if you don't thank my creation, you don't thank me. That God has to be thanked because of all the mercy that is given around us, including the people we live in, the society that we live in, the business he's given us, the, the health, whatever it may be. The way we interact with the blessings of God, which includes the people around us, is going to make us a more pure individual. So that's almost approaching it from a very akhlaqi perspective, um, looking at the manners and, and you know, the good morals that we should have and interaction with one another. My personal feeling is that within our community structures, again, we, we kind of have this uh, jurisprudence heavy or fiqh heavy approach where everything is about how we pray, how, you know, fasting, this and that, which is all obviously important and, and, and we have to do this as part of the faith. But it's almost like as long as I'm ticking those boxes, it doesn't matter how I am with my kids. It doesn't matter how I am in the community. Um, the akhlaq side of things is almost left by the wayside. And again, my own personal experience and, and from what I've seen and heard and read of the Prophet, I get this very kind of akhlaq heavy approach where it's all about dealing with people. Um, and I think that, and I, I don't know, I mean, you might not, you might wish to sit on the fence on this one. <laughs> but I feel like we've we've gone away from, from the akhlaqi side of things a little bit. Um, and, and we've kind of forgotten the essence, or that essence at least, of the, the prophetic example. And it's more just become a case of fulfilling the requirements of being a Muslim. Which And, and I mean that in like a fiqhi sense of like doing the actions, going through the motions, but not actually having that kind of... Um, light within your heart if you know what i mean sometimes because maybe because of the fact that we're first generation muslims here you know we're being we've been taught in a manner in which our parents felt that we would be able to protect our faith if we upheld its jurisprudential aspects mm. which is true from one aspect like you said but there's a whole different dimension to this faith as well not mm. just the jurisprudential aspects not just how we pray to god mm. if we don't address that and this will only be addressed by the way we bring up children, by the way in which we preach our faith to ourselves and to others, we will not become holistic. For the Prophet to be able to stand up in the middle of the night, but also be the most humble and kind individual when he came out to society, that shows that God doesn't want an individual who will only worship him in at the nights or in a mosque, yeah. but he wants an individual who will attract other people to God through his actions as well. He will be godly in his total actions, in private and in public. I also wanted to add that being religious or adhering to a religion means being God-conscious and God-weary. It means knowing that God is watching over us at all times. That means that I should be the same person and the most ethical individual in private as I am in public. The segregation that you've mentioned of being religious in jurisprudential actions and outside with my children, with my wife, with my family, being somebody different. This is because of a lack of understanding that it's the same God who is present in my prayer as the same God that is present when I'm speaking to my children. Mm. He's not less present when I speak to my children, such that I should forget the way in which I should treat them. You know, if I stand in front of an individual who I am awe-stricken by, then all of a sudden the way I speak to my child will be different because I won't want to embarrass myself in front of that individual. So that's the feeling that we get when we pray. We feel we're standing in front of God. He's watching over us. We should be still. We should be praying correctly. The pronunciation should be on par because we understand his presence. But that same presence is present at other times outside of the prayer. And if anything, 
our prayer will be affected by the way in which we deal with one another outside of prayer. If I am ungodly outside of the prayer, I cannot expect to be godly within the prayer. That's deep. <laughs> I like that. Um, no, it, it, it's it, it's yeah, it's something that I, I think about a lot um, personally. Just like I think, with from from the akhlaqi perspective, as I said, and as you said, it's it's something that should be within us at all times. And obviously, you know, we all we all sin, we all make mistakes. That's fine, but more often than not, I'm finding that people are more than happy to kind of uphold certain parts of faith and be very fast and loose with the other and the other often is like the akhlaq and, and that kind of side of things um so it's interesting to get that perspective now with regards to the prophet in terms of uh the people that he was he was sent to and and the community that he was in i think it's quite significant that it was his community that he was born from the people he spent 40 years amongst the people and then came to kind of reform and change society um, within that same place. Uh, I see that as almost like a lesson that that's something that we should also look to do is make change from within. So from within our community structures, not form our own things and move move away and whatever else. Um, but is there a lesson there for us, do you think? Definitely. I mean, if you look at all the prophets that we are aware of, they were sent to their own people because it's more likely that you will be able to change your own people compared to changing another people. Mm. Another people, as soon as you try and make them go against the grain, will say that you don't understand us, you're not from us, uh, the culture will be different, you don't understand the, the, the subtleties or the nuances within our culture and the way we treat one another. The language will be different. You know, People will interpret what you say different in different communities and cultures. Your actions will be interpreted differently. And that's why... Allah in His wisdom sends prophets from within their own people so that they can impact their own people the most. Mm. Today, when you go to your local mosque, if you've been an integral part of the mosque, you've been born and raised in that mosque, then naturally, in as much as it may be difficult for you to make change, you will be best placed to make change compared to somebody coming in and being transported. Because you understand up. the culture, you understand the people, you understand the history and context, right? Correct and they will naturally trust you more because they've okay, seen yeah. you from in the time that you were born. They've mm. seen you growing up in their laps. Yeah. So they realize that you have the community's best interest at heart. Mm. And that's why the people who mocked the Holy Prophet, never once did they say that you're not from us. They tried to say the language you're using is not our language because every tribe still had different uh, words and lahja. Mm. Um, Dialects. Dialects that they would use. And Uswa, for example, was something that the Quraysh used and not other people used. There's many a word in the Quran that, you know, they were taken by surprise, some of the other tribes, because it was not something that they would use or they thought it was a foreign word. Hmm. So the language that the Prophet used showed to many of them that he was from them, he knew them, and they couldn't say that you're not from us, so we're going to reject what you're saying. They saw him for 40 years. He grew up with them. He worked with them. He married from within them. Yeah. He was an integral part of their society. They couldn't ostracize him because of that. Otherwise, that would be the first thing they would have picked up on. That you're not from us. You don't understand us. Who are you to speak to us? But they had to listen to him. They had no choice but to listen to him. In the same way in our mosques. The mosque cannot simply turn around. The administration can't turn around and say, you're not from us. We're not going to kick you out. Because you're a part, and, you know, you're a part of that mosque. You're an integral part of the mosque. Mm. You've grown up. You're the furniture in that mosque. They have to listen to you. And it's difficult. You know, change is not going to be easy, but the people from within are the ones who are going to be best placed for the uphill struggles. You look at the comparison between Yunus and Prophet Muhammad, where you have one prophet who, Yunus, who strove hard and tried hard to preach to his people. Yeah. But at the end, he clearly became angered because of the way in which they were rejecting his speech. And on the other hand, you have our prophet who had maybe even worse scenarios and environments to deal with and more hostility but he didn't turn around and turn his back on his people he kept at it and even the worst of the worst some of them ended up submitting to the lord of muhammad because of the way in which muhammad spoke to them he treated them they realized they couldn't get under his skin mm. they pelted him with stones they threw rubbish on him they they physically abused him they mentally tried to torture him 
but they saw that this man was principled and that's what attracted them to his faith. Do, do you think also it was a case of, I mean, alongside uh, the attractiveness of, of his personality and of his message, but do you think that for for people it was, um, they were yearning for change? Because the Prophet obviously was a, a revolutionary in, in many regards. There were many of the practices and like tribal behaviors like uh, infanticide and things like that where they would bury their daughters that he stopped and abolished and, and changed. And, and with the sort of with the rise of Islam, um, even uh, things like um, racism within the community were, were fully addressed and, and the, the things were shifted. Do you think that society at the time wanted that? I think that's an innate calling within every being, a calling towards perfection. Mm. And such that when, when you hear truth, you're attracted to it. You're always in search of it. Yeah. Even if you think you're at a state in your life or a position in your life where you're comfortable with what you believe in, when you hear something greater, which has more truth to it than what you believe in, you're attracted to it. So naturally, these people may have thought that they were moral, some of them, in what they were doing. Others innately would have been listening to their own conscience and realized that their actions are immoral. Yeah. And as soon as they had an alternative, which brought more truth to surface, mm. then they were attracted towards it. Because I, 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 I still, like, till this day, am a little bit baffled when I think that, you know, the Prophet came and basically presented an entirely new way of thinking, an entirely new belief system. Um, it's not like now we have established religions and people change from one to another. It's like if someone were to come today and bring about a whole new set of, of, of beliefs, a different God or belief structure in a God or a deity, whatever. And for people to just jump in, obviously it wasn't an overnight process. There was a whole thing that went behind it. And you know the Prophet showed through his behavior, through his akhlaq, through everything that that he, he had truth within him. Um, but it's almost incredible to think that a religion was born out of out of nothing from just one person existing in a society. I think the the first change that he made, obviously, was that he moved them away from polytheism to monotheism. Yeah. So it was. I think it's a very logical step to say that if you're going to worship a greater existence, then it has to be one. So he worked on them in terms of monotheism. After that, he started to teach them about human rights. Mm. He spoke about equality. He spoke about justice and fairness. This was something that was not prevalent in society, where you could buy other human beings, where you didn't have to pay them, where they would work for you at whatever hours of the day or the night that you demanded from them, that you would have relations with them yeah. and not take care of any child that was born from that relation. Ship. So naturally, these were rights that he was bringing within society, a moral framework. Before he came to praying and abandoning alcohol and mm. paying tax, the first pillars that he would lay and the, the foundations that he would lay would be this moral framework. And that's what attracted people to this religion. And then after that, then he taught them, okay, now this Lord that you worship, who has given you this moral framework, desires from you for your own good that you worship him according to his terms. And these are his terms of worship. Yeah, Just simply telling people that you have to pray in this fashion wouldn't have attracted them to it. You had to attract people to the faith. And this was going to be, let me finish. I'm sorry. Sorry. No, I'm joking. Go, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, no, no. It's too late now. No, no. We spoke about this before. <laughs> we you spoke know? about, I, I basically gesticulated towards the sheikh and he cut me off uh, from interrupting. But I, I will interrupt anyway. <laughs> um, <laughs> so... Uh, once I remember hearing a talk and, and the Sheikh basically said something along the lines of, you know, what do you think the first message was that the Prophet gave to the people after prophethood? And then he opened up and, and he was like, let people ask. And, and the natural assumptions were things like prayer, halal meat, fasting, whatever. Um, and and from, from my understanding, what it actually was, was basically uh, say salam to one another and, and eat and break bread together, eat together. And again, when I heard that, I was just like, "Wow!" Like we've we we think that Islam is is like a a very rigid framework of how to live our life, but it's the way the Prophet introduced the religion to people was in such a beautiful way of just like, 
brotherhood and I think that's such a powerful thing and, and there's there's a whole side I guess to Islam and whatever else that we sometimes forget and overlook just the strength in in so many of our practices and things that have come off the back of community um, and, and as I said br- brotherhood in particular and unity of the ummah and things like that and the fact that we all pray in the same direction um, and these are things we overlook but I think often like in, in my experience I do some kind of interfaith work within the community and when you when we are speaking to heads of other centers um, and we're going to the churches and the synagogues and the temples and whatever else often what you find is that they don't have the same sense of community they have like an aging community that is like active churchgoers most of the churches in this country um, is a very much an aging community they don't have the thriving youth that that we do in Islam and it's a beautiful thing and I think we fully take it for granted um, but that I, I mean that's just my own kind of um, reflections there I don't know if you want to jump in so two points on that firstly I know we've been speaking about jurisprudence and this rigid framework. We we must realize that even jurisprudence comes under the banner of akhlaq or morality because it's the way in which we are interacting with our Lord, yeah. the etiquette in which we are worshipping and speaking to our Lord. So the overriding title here for everything that we're speaking about is akhlaq. It's not that jurisprudence, jurisprudence is on one side and fiqh, and on the other side is our akhlaq. It is in my head. It, it, it shouldn't be because <laughs> it, probably shouldn't it be, all yeah. has to be under one grand yeah, yeah. title of akhlaq. How we worship our God, how we speak to him, how we sit in front of him, how we speak to him, how we don't demand from him, how mm. we please with and content with his decree and his will. But we still ask um, for change, for example. We yeah. still ask for things that we don't know. Are they good for us? Are they not? But at the end of our prayers, we still say that if it's good for us, give it to us. So it shows that Humility, it shows that complete dependency, lack of foresight from our side that we don't know what we're asking for. Is it good for us? Is it not? Mm. But we trust you that you will only give us that which is good. So there is that etiquette of speaking to your God uh, in the prayer, outside of prayer. It all comes under this banner of akhlaq. Secondly, what we're talking about, how the Prophet attracted people in the mosques that you were talking about and how we go to our mosques and we see people of different ages. It is sad to see that our mosques are very different to the mosques of the Prophet. That the mosque of the Prophet, you know, first of all, it was very simple. The Prophet, especially when he came to the first mosque, he he also partook in building this mosque with his own two hands. He would lift up stones and he would bring them and he would also build walls. And they, the people around, you know, his companions who had accepted Islam found this to be very peculiar. Hmm. That every individual that we have met who is greater than us, be it in wealth or in knowledge, whatever it may be, and in status in society, they are on a pedestal and we respect them and they do not get their hands dirty. But this was a man who would sit with the peasants and also sit with the rich, but he would not be comfortable in having a gathering where there was only one and not the other. He wouldn't want to sit just with the rich, for example. He would want to make sure that any gathering he came to was a gathering where everybody was united And the only factor that would differentiate people is their consciousness of God, not their race, not the amount of wealth they have, the status, the tribe that they came from. And when he comes to the first mosque, he builds it with his own hands like others. And and then it's a very simple mosque. Bilal used to stand on the minaret. So you can imagine how low this minaret was, that he would climb it and stand on top and then give the call to prayer. There was no roof on this mosque. That the companions would complain, I think we discussed it previously, but the companions would complain about the heat. And then he allowed certain type of uh, roof to be put on. It had to be a simple place where you were not distracted from God. But you came there and there was nothing to distract you apart from the goal which you had come for. And that you would remember God in this mosque. And I'm assuming there was no membership policy at that mosque. I think this is the bane of our culture. (laughs) If there is, or our cultures rather. If there's one thing that I feel hurts the Prophet the most when he looks at our mosques is how distant we are from what he came to break in terms of idols within ourselves. This idol of tribalism, of being of the same culture. Mm. Our mosques should be a place of a house of God, not a house of culture. Our aim should not be to promote our culture, the pivotal aim. You know, is not to promote our culture, is to facilitate the worship of God. 
you know, I think it's uh, Regent's Park Moss that has a, a statistic of one conversion a month. Well. Uh, if not a week, yeah, you'll have to check it out. But is it one a week or one a month? At this shows, and even when you go there, you see people of all different cultures or colors, different languages being spoken. And sometimes when you go to our local mosque, you see something quite different. You see people of the same race. You see people speaking the same uh, dialect, the same language. I'm not talking about English, but I'm talking about other cultural languages. And that shows you that the Prophet wanted this to be a mosque where anybody who says that there is one God could walk within and feel that this is their home. Hmm. You mentioned membership policy, and this again, it, it now starts building barriers where the Prophet came to remove these barriers. He made us stand shoulder to shoulder, rich and poor. He made us go around the Kaaba and circumambulate the Kaaba whilst taking off our identity in terms of our clothes that we wear, in terms of not looking good and not perfuming ourselves. He wanted our sweat to mix with one another's. And we take pride in this. Whenever we speak to other people about our religion, we say, look at how our prophet broke all these barriers. There is no difference between black, white and brown, between man and woman. Yeah. And it comes back to the first point we said about hypocrisy. Yeah. Sometimes we preach that this is what our prophet was like, but well, there's yeah. no point preaching it if we're not going to act upon it in the first place. It's like the... A few years ago, I think the MCB had a campaign called Open My Mosque, or Open Our Mosques. And it was it, it was literally about having space for women in mosques. And a lot of mosques in the UK, up and down the country, don't have facilities or adequate facilities for women. So they'll have a large prayer hall for men, for example, and a very small space for, for women. Often, and, and there, that, that whole campaign, I think, I believe, was also about disability access and things like that, making sure that it's accessible for everyone in the community. And I think, yeah, I mean, this is something that I, I told you beforehand that I did want to uh, touch upon in terms of um, looking at the, the mosque of the Prophet and, and everything that you've just illustrated and then thinking, right, my local center or whoever's listening to this, their local center, think about the center, think about how it operates, think about the structure of it. Do you think that's a mosque that, would, that the Prophet would, would have endorsed, that the Prophet would have been proud to be a member of? Could he be a member of it? Because often it's not. And, and there's this notion, at least in the UK, I think that's, that's uh, quite harmful. And I, I, th I think it exists everywhere of, as you mentioned, tribalism, but like ethnocentric or ethnocentricity, where we'll have every different culture will have its own center. And then all of a sudden reverts or converts to the religion don't have a space. They go to a center. They don't feel very welcome. They then set up their own kind of revert center. And it's sad because I, I do not believe this is the kind of the way that Islam um, was brought down to us and, and was meant to be kind of practiced. Um, but here we are. But how painful is that, that we go out saying that this is the most perfect faith, come to our faith, we will teach you our faith. And as soon as somebody says, okay, I'm willing to bring about difficulty in the relationship with my siblings, with my family, I know I may be disowned. I know the relationship will become sour. I know my friend circle will have to change. I will have to stop eating the foods that I indulge in and drinking what I drink. I'm willing to take and sacrifice all of that in order to come to a religion mm. that is much more moral. But yet I find that the people who are preaching this religion, once I take that step, all of a sudden disassociate from it. Turn their backs, yeah. There's no support network for mm. people who become Muslims. Yeah. And you look at the Ansar and Muhajirun, look at how the Prophet dealt with these people. Look at how they ma he made them brothers. Made them travel together, right? So even when the Muhajir, when they migrated yeah. in the Ansar, they split their businesses. So the, just if I, I, I'm remind me of the history. So the Ansar were from Mecca. Go on, take me back to school, Sheikh. Give me that look. <laughs> and Medina were the Ansar. And the Muhajirun, the ones who did Hijrah yeah. from Mecca to the Medina. Mm -hmm. So when the Ansar, the, the, the Quran is clear about this as well. Let me tell you. Just a couple of verses of the Quran which talk about this, which highlight to us mm -hmm. what it was like at that time. So this is Surah number 59, Surah Al-Hasha, verse number 9. And as for those who were settled in Medina, these people who were settled in Medina, the Ansar, they had adopted the faith. They loved those who migrated towards them. So these Muhajirun that migrated towards Ansar, they loved them. These were people who, had, who came from a different background. They were a different tribe, yet they loved these people. And it wasn't just Arabs loving Arabs. 
These are people who are, who are black, who are white, whatever skin color they were. They loved each other, not because of the fact that they had some commonality in culture or language with them. They loved them because they were all under this banner of La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah. They loved them because of that. Mm. And they didn't have any want in their hearts of that for that which the migrants were given. So when the Prophet would give the migrants something, he would give them wealth, for example. The Ansar didn't become jealous that mm. why are you giving them and not us. Yeah, yeah. They love for their brother what they would love for themselves. They went a step further and they would prefer their brothers over their own selves. They realized that these are people who don't have what we have. We have houses, we have families here. These people have given up everything it's for the sake right. of the religion. Yeah. Not because they just want safety, but want safety from what? In order to practice the faith freely. That's why they're migrating. And now that they're migrating, we should prefer them over our own selves. They split their businesses. They would give them half of their businesses. They would share their houses with them. This shows that these people had a common goal and this was love of God and the Prophet. That's why they loved one another. There was no, you're of a different culture so that you cannot have the same benefits that I have. Yeah. There was no mosque that was cultural based that only those people who have a certain culture can have full access to the facilities of this mosque and all the events that partake in it, that happen in this mosque and unfold in this mosque. That goes against the principle that the Prophet came for in order to bring us into a state of morality where we didn't see differences between one another. We saw each other in accordance with our level of God consciousness. When you were talking about reverts earlier, um, it reminded me of, of a video that we, we just um, published uh, in the Being Muslim series that Jessica um, presents and produces. And she interviewed um, a, a brother who's, who's a revert. And he talks about how when he first converted to the religion, um, he had a brother come up to him in the mosque and was like, if you ever come to Egypt, here's my number, call me, you're staying with me, whatever, I'll look after you. And then very soon after that, it becomes a very lonely place for a revert where those kind of invitations are no longer there. No one's around and the day-to-day -day struggle of like coming to terms with the faith and, and understanding the, the intricacies of it, you're completely on your own. Um, and I think that's what's sad about today. Um, that as you said, you talk about the Mahajirun and the Ansar. I remember which one's which now, because the Mahajir Hijra migration. It's good. I'm proud of myself. Um, but you look at that dynamic there and how they would do kind of anything for their brother, and and they literally did. They took them in, as you said, they split their businesses, everything. Um, and then you think today, where when we have people within our community that might be struggling or that are recently converted to the faith. Or whatever it might be, very rarely will you will we have that kind of generosity and and as you say, want not only want what we want for ourselves, but prefer for them um, to have something over us. So I think there's a lot to reflect on there. Um, with regards to the prophet himself, uh, and probably this is going to be I think the last kind of thing I wanted to discuss with you. How do we humanize him? Um, in, in terms of our understanding because as I said I, I think it's it's very easy to look at the Prophet as a perfect human being as someone once upon a time kind of thing with all these you know lovely stories of, of the time of the Prophet the mosque of the Prophet you mentioned Bilal the first Ma'adhin all of that kind of stuff um, it's stuff that we're taught from a very young age and I think previously I might have been on the podcast or just in one of the times when we spent too much time together where we've spoken about how Tawheed is something that we learn in Madrasa. Um, we learn until the age of like 7, 10, whatever. There's only one God and that's where it stops. And we don't ever continue. And I feel like with the Prophet as well, we've learned all the stories of the Prophet. We've learned everything about him. Um, but then we've stopped just kind of living his example and trying to draw him from his example, if that makes sense. Um, so how can we tangibly relate to the prophet i think the prophetic traditions that have been left behind are, are clear enough for us to act upon um, his generosity for example his his mercy um, there was a, a an anecdote that i remember the prophet was at war he was inside his tent and an enemy found his way within the tent of the prophet he takes out his unsheathed his sword he puts it to the neck of the prophet the prophet wakes up and then he tells the Prophet that, who is there for you, O Muhammad? And he's encircling the Prophet. And the Prophet says, Allah, Allah will protect me. And as this man is encircling the Prophet, he trips. 
So the Prophet jumps up from his place, takes the sword, puts it at the enemy's neck. And he says, who's there for you? And the man turns around and he says, your generosity, O Muhammad. And the Prophet lets him be after that. They knew this man to be generous. Mm. They knew that even with his enemies, they would, he would at least deal in a just fashion with his enemies, with people who are actually attacking him. Now, we're not in that position. Yeah. But we need to be just with people who are from within our faith, within our family structures, and from outside. People are human at the end of the day. Everybody has a path to God. We don't know whether our final breath will be closer to God compared to the person I'm dealing with, with or whether it'll be further from God. So if we don't know that, how can I treat somebody as if they've already been banished towards hell? I must treat everybody with a certain level of humanity and love and kindness. Mm. And that will attract them, not necessarily to Islam, but it will attract them towards God, firstly and foremostly. I still want to come back to this example about the mosque because it it just doesn't... <laughs> not, it, not done venting. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot to say and... Maybe this isn't the right uh, no, no, go podcast ahead. No, to no, say no, let's do it, let's do it, go on. You know, imagine we were being treated in the way that we treat other people in our society. Yeah. Imagine in Britain we were not given you know, a vote for the leadership because we may not have been seen as the indigenous people. Even though we were born and bred in the same land, in the same community, but we weren't given the right to vote. We weren't being given the, the right to partake in certain events. We had to pay a bit more to go to a class compared to people who are you know from the indigenous species as such mm. we would jump out of our seats we would be pulling our hair we would scream at the top of our voices that this is injustice that how can this be prevalent in the 21st century but yet the same thing that we would fight for and say is oppression is the very same thing that we are willing to do not in our own ho homes but in the house of god we're willing to claim that this is a house of god and treat people as uh, I, I don't use this term in the exact sense, but subhuman, that we're at a level because of the postcode lottery that we won, the color of our skin and where we were born and where our parents and ancestors came from. But you who has the same God and follows the same prophet as me within the house of God that I built and I'm controlling, you're going to be of a different station. If we cannot see the hypocrisy in our actions, then we're not going to be able to implement what the Prophet has left behind for us. If we're not willing to tackle these difficult questions, if not willing to make changes within our own homes, our own selves first, then our homes, then our communities, then we're not going to become like this Prophet. Then we're going to be people who, like the Quran says, Why do you say that which you don't do? Allah hates it that you say that which you don't do. We don't want to be people in the, that fall into that category. We talk about morality, we talk about makaramul akhlaq, we talk about this man who even the people who disregarded his faith and the religion that he was propagating still found him to be the most moral individual. We speak about that, take pride in it, but we're not willing to act upon it. We know so much about this prophet. Yet if we don't put it into practice, then naturally we won't follow in his footsteps. Uh, if you I want to humanize him... Yeah. Start inculcating what he inculcated within himself. He became godly in his capacity. If God was just, he became just in his capacity. If God is merciful, he became merciful. If God is knowledgeable, he became knowledgeable in his capacity. So ultimately it's about looking at, you keep saying in, our, in, in his capacity. And I think that's that's again an important point for us where it's like we all have responsibilities we all have roles in society be it in the household be it as a boss or as an employee um, and I guess within our own um, limited spheres we have to kind of uphold godly um, attributes as much as possible um, it, everywhere correct yeah we uh, must become godly individuals and and when I was referring to kind of humanizing um, the prophet there was also uh some verses of the Quran that I wanted to ask you about in uh, Surah Qiyamah, verses 16 to 19. These clearly have just come to me off the top of my head. You, you did not mention these beforehand. So tell me about these verses I think and, the, what, and the wider context of the Surah. What's beautiful about the Quran is that it shows you the human side of the Prophet. It humanizes the Prophet. 
the way in which God speaks to the Holy Prophet. Then you look at history and you look at how he did the same things that you and I do. People in the Quran mock the Holy Prophet and they say, how can he be a messenger? But he you know, walks in the streets like everybody else. He goes to the markets like we go to the markets. Shouldn't there be angels on either side of him? Isn't that what a prophet should be? The Quran speaks about how Allah tells the Holy Prophet that you do not speak from your own whim. But what you say is a revelation from us. But this is with regards to the Quran. This is with regards to the message that has come down. That the Prophet will not give a piece of the Quran or a verse of the Quran from his own self. It will be revealed. But in the rest of his life, everywhere else, when he speaks to his wife and his children, he goes to them, he speaks from his own wisdom. He speaks in and of himself. You know, from It sprouts from his own self, his own tongue, his own heart. He doesn't have to wait for revelation when he communicates with people at other times outside of the revelation of the message. So that shows that this was a, a normal human being. When it comes to these verses that you mentioned, Surah Al-Qiyamah, Allah begins by taking all these oaths, swearing by the day of resurrection. He's talking about how he's going to resurrect human beings until their fingertips are recreated. And then he speaks about how man still desires to sin, how man doesn't ask about the day of resurrection. And then he describes the day of resurrection. Then all of a sudden, when it comes to verses 16 to 19, these four verses, they seem very much out of place. You could literally pick out these four verses from this surah, from this chapter, and the verses would still flow in their meaning. If you look at these verses, 16, all of a sudden, God is speaking to a people about the day of resurrection. And then he turns his speech to the Prophet and he says, Move not your tongue with it, O Muhammad. With regards to the Quran. To hasten with the recitation of the Quran. Don't try and hasten your recitation of the Quran. He's telling the Prophet to, to wait for revelation to come and then say it to the people. And then that's verse 16. Verse 17. Inna jam'ahu. We are the ones upon whom its collection is it's our duty. Mm. We are the ones who have to collect it. We are the ones who are going to ensure that it's recited to the people. So when it's recited, verse 18, when it's recited to you, obviously through Jibreel, through the angel, then follow its recitation. And then again, Allah reminds the Prophet, ثُمَّ إِنَّ عَلَيْنَا بَيَانَهُ Then it's upon us to clarify it and make its recitation known to people. These four verses, it seems, and if you look at both, Shia and Sunni um, tafasir of the Qur'an, explanations and exegesis of the Qur'an, it's clear that these four verses are now directed to the Holy Prophet. It seems that he had this sense of duty. He mm -hmm. felt that as soon as revelation was coming down, he should quickly say it so that he doesn't miss a word. He was human. He didn't want to miss a word. He didn't want to make a mistake. He never did. And that's why he's immaculate, because he tried so hard and he worked so hard. He had the same desires that we have. He had memory like we had. He didn't have access to all knowledge because that is only for God. So clearly he was human like us. So there are certain things that also he became a bit apprehensive about. One of them was fulfilling his duty towards God. Mm. And so here he wanted to make sure that the verses as they revealed to him, the wordings, the harakat, you know, the fatha, the kasra is given in the same fashion. So he would say it as it was coming down. And this is where God tells him, wait for it. Let it come down. Re Let the revelation relax. finish. Let yeah, take in the entire revelation, let yeah. it come to you. Don't worry about its recitation mm. because that's our duty. We will ensure that through your tongue, O Muhammad, the revelation is passed on to the people in the most perfect fashion. It's God taking care of his messenger, but at the same time telling him that yes, you are human, but when it comes to the message, realize that its protection is upon us and we will protect it to ensure that it's given to the people as we desire. I think that's uh, a good place to end. Um, we've pretty much covered, I'm just having a look at my list very quickly. Uh, we pretty much covered everything that we wanted to kind of discuss. Uh, do, do you have any final remarks? Don't feel obliged because I've asked you. No, I think we close by, by saying that this was a man who everybody can learn from, not just Muslim. It's like we learn from Musa, Moses, and Isa, Jesus, and Abraham, Ibrahim. We, whenever there's somebody who's godly, we can learn from them. Yeah, and we cannot believe in our hearts that this great prophet 
is reserved for, for us as Muslims. His actions were moral and that will speak to any heart that is still alive. Mm-hmm. Justice, fairness, equality, humbleness, humility, kindness, you know, eloquence in speech, politeness, kindness towards parents, towards his uncles, the way he treats his grandchildren. These are things everybody can learn from. But before we propagate, in order for our propagation to have the desired impact, we must practice first. So let us take it upon ourselves to practice something little from the Prophet. It's mm. his that we celebrate his birthday. We celebrate the, the coming of this great man. Let us take a tradition, you know, there's so many in English. It's not that it's only in Arabic and preserved there. Let us take a tradition that is practical, implement it in our lives, and then preach to the rest of the people around us how great this man was. Well, thank you very much for, for joining us again. Thank um, you. As I said, the most prolific guest on the Muslim Vibe podcast. If we make it four the next time, then you'll be head and shoulders above the rest. But inshallah, that, that day will come soon. Uh, thank you again for your time. Thank you very much, Sunny. So that was my conversation with Sheikh Ali Hussain. Um, I think there was uh, a lot to take away from the conversation, as there always is. Um, and also a lot to kind of think about generally, um, especially when looking at our communities and ourselves as well and how we interact with people and uh, especially I think for people involved in kind of organizing or activism um, anything in the in 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 the community space uh, it's important that we kind of constantly go through a process of refining and checking our morals and our actions against the kind of morals and actions of the prophet Um, so I think for me at least it definitely served as like a very Uh, important reminder um, and and something that as I said we should probably continually do not just when we're kind of celebrating the birth of the prophet and and we're mindful of him um, a little bit more at that time Um, that's that's pretty much everything for this week's podcast Um, as always be sure to subscribe if you haven't already if you're subscribed then be sure to give us a a five star rating um, on whichever app that you listen to this and we'll be back next week inshallah with more fantastic content Thank you.